0: I would caution you against um, thinking that there's only a way or there's only two ways. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. This is very exciting. This is uh, the Intensive 13 week. Always look forward to these Looking forward to uh, joining a great group of people in the Purple Room and evolving the model another level. Um, for those of you on IFAS University, uh, we're going to have a content update today, so be looking for that. If you're not on IFAS University, go to ifasuniversity.com. You can get signed up there. Today's Q&A comes from Larry, who is an IFAS University member. and He had some questions in regards to how we're coaching the some breathing activities depending on the wide versus narrow archetype. So remember that when we have a a narrow ISA archetype, we have an axial skeleton that is biased towards inhalation with a compensatory exhalation strategy superimposed. And then for the wide ISAs, we have an exhaled axial skeleton with the superimposition of of the inhaled strategy. So. We have to consider the initial conditions whenever we're going to be coaching somebody through an activity, especially when we're, we're talking about superimposing the breathing. And I actually have talked about this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut away to a, a video from June of last year where we actually talked directly about this, Larry. Um, so I would suggest that, that you can watch this repeatedly if you like. Um, on the YouTube channel. For those of you who have not subscribed to my YouTube channel, please go there and subscribe and you can get all those videos as well. Um, If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience as usual. Everybody have an outstanding Monday. Happy Intensive 13 Week and I'll see you tomorrow. So let's try to clarify a few things by playing off of a question that I got from Adam and Adam wants to know if his abdominal muscles should be contracted or completely relaxed at rest. So this gives us an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about what's really happening during resting breathing and then how we're going to apply this um, in certain types of exercises when we're trying to restore movement capabilities or when we're trying to uh, reinforce performance. So under resting circumstances, you probably shouldn't have to think about your breathing very much. Um, at least I would hope that you wouldn't. Um, in, in most cases of resting breathing, the, the inhalation has some measure of effort associated with it. It's primarily the diaphragm that's, that's creating the negative pressure inside the body that allows you to breathe in. And then it's an elastic recoil of the, of the thorax. The lung tissue actually recoils you have the eccentric orientation of, of, the, of the diaphragm, creating a, uh, a positive pressure, and then you exhale. So there's a slight little tweak of abdominal activity at the end of an exhalation that's that's almost non-existent. In fact, for a long time, they said that there wasn't any. And then there's a little bit of research that says that there is. Um, but But point being is that most of our resting breathing should be relaxed and comfortable and not require any thought. Now... When I started talking about the two archetypes, when I started talking about wide ISAs and narrow ISAs and classifying them in regards to their, their tendencies, we started to talk about using different ways of breathing to reinforce uh, a, a change to, to get someone to the opposite end of, of this, uh, the, it appears to be this dichotomy of inhalation exhalation. They're actually occurring at the same time. So it's not really a, a true dichotomy. But because the diaphragm does not descend uniformly in the two archetypes, it requires that there's two different types of breathing when we're trying to restore movement capability. So with the narrow ISAs, because of the way that they trap air on the thorax, if we use a high pressure strategy, all we do is reinforce the compensatory strategy. We continue to trap air and we don't make the changes that we've been attempting to change. And, And... So we would use a more relaxed mouth, sort of, we always describe it as like fogging up a window, fogging up a mirror type of breathing, because if we can slow down the exhalation, we actually uh, provide time to clear the air that would normally get trapped during the compensatory strategy that a narrow ISA would use. With a wide ISA, we tend to use a little bit more forceful exhalation because what we have to do is we we have to close we have to close the the wide ISA, and the way we do that is using superficial musculature like external oblique, which would then narrow that angle. So that actually does require a little bit more of an effortful exhalation. But here's the problem that that people are running into, especially with the wide ISA archetypes, is that they're using high levels of muscle activity during the, the, the breathing activities, and they're using a more forceful exhalation. The problem that you run into with that is I've already got somebody that's utilizing a very, very strong exhalation, concentric orientation type of strategy. And then all you're doing is reinforcing that during the activities that you're attempting to use to restore movement capabilities. So what you end up doing is you just reinforce the strategy because by driving the exhalation too aggressively, They recruit their superficial strategy just like they're doing under most circumstances, and then you don't get the changes that you want. And so we have to take the superficial strategies into consideration whenever we're trying to coach somebody through some form of breathing activity, especially when we're trying to restore movement. Um, So under those circumstances, we actually use a very relaxed, casual type of breathing with very slow, methodical, movements um very very low tension very very low effort and because again if we have this really really strong wide isa superficial concentric orientation you're never going to get your way out of that by trying to to use more effort because again you just reinforce the strategy so again i would caution you against Um, thinking that there's only a way or there's only two ways. What we have to do is we have to consider what this person that we're working with is is bringing to us. And then we have to reason our way through the, the, the strategies to alleviate whatever we're trying to change or reinforce what we're trying to reinforce. So from a performance standpoint, If I do have somebody that that has to drive a lot of high force, then I do want to use a concentric strategy. I do want to use this aggressive exhalation. So always taking the individual into consideration is where we go. It's always N equals 1. It's always in a gray. Everybody wants a black and white answer when it comes to uh, all of these, these concerns. But the reality is that we have to adapt our treatment strategy or training strategy to the individual. So it's not as black and white as everybody makes it seem to be. Um, So please, please, please take that into consideration. So thank you, Adam. That force that is produced has to be accounted for because number one, it allows you to do amazing things like walk on two legs, throw a baseball at 95 miles an hour, jump really, really high. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, busy, crazy Tuesday. Um, Intense 13 week, so we gotta kinda cut to the chase. So here's the good news. Um, I did the Upside Strength podcast a while back um, with Sean Seal, and the whole thing is finally uh, posted up on YouTube and on their their, uh, podcasting channel. And so again, thank you, Sean, for your, your interest in what I do but uh this will give everybody a chance to see the whole thing um so the links are um here if you're watching this on instagram um, they are in my bio you can go to the bio click on the link and it will take you to the youtube or to the uh, podcast channel so uh, please take advantage of that Um, if you would like to participate in a live q a Um, Please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget to put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. So I'm going to cut away. We're going to do about five minutes of this uh, podcast that I did with Sean. This is in regards to internal uh, dynamics. So gut movement is actually a pretty major influencer as far as how we move. So we can actually take advantage of these forces. It's one of those things that allows us to do cool things like walking on two legs that, that uh, no other animal really does as well as we do. And then it's also can be detrimental in regards to some of the things that we see during um, really high force, high speed movement. Um, so again, this is a little bit of intro to that. The, the discussion is much larger on the podcast, so please go there and watch the whole thing. Have an outstanding Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow.
1: Um, going back to your your statement about anatomy and dead guy anatomy and and its limitations, what is your if you have to give a primer for people that haven't been exposed to to your model, um, what is your current understanding of internal dynamics when it comes to to movement?
0: Well, you mean the fact that it's been underappreciated?
1: Yes, this and then for people who've never maybe heard about the concept of internal dynamics, what what it actually is?
0: Well, okay, so so you're, you're a big bag of water. Let's just make it really, really simple. Okay. You're a big bag of water. And if you've ever like, so they, they actually, we actually have these as tools in the gym now where we have the, the big water bags and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like all you gotta do is swing one of those big water bags around. It's like, that's happening inside of you all the time. And so, so that, that force that is produced has to be accounted for because number one, it allows you to do amazing things like walk on two legs, throw a baseball at 95 miles an hour, jump really really high like those those internal dynamics contribute to our ability to perform they are also detrimental to performance and so if we can understand a little bit more about about how those internal forces interact with our ability to manage them in in an environment that is based on gravity and space and 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 the external forces that we have to manage if we can understand that we have stuff going on, on the inside stuff going on, on the outside, it provides us a better, um, uh, representation of reality. Again, we can't see it, but we can get close to it. Right. And it allows us to make better decisions in regards to our interaction. So when we, it'll get us away from the things that, that just appear to be entirely superficial. And so when you see somebody like we, we would have like a, say a volleyball player, doing a box jump, they jump off a box and they, and they land and there's a certain way that they land. And so some people will go, oh, she has weak this, right? When we see something happen, when you see somebody's knees moving down and inward as they land a jump, they say, oh, she has a weak something. And it's like, well, um, actually when you hit the ground like that, um, your guts come second. Your body falls first, your guts follow, right? Cause they float, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so when you hit, there's another hit that, that's coming. And if you don't manage that, you have to be able to capture that force as well. So mm-hmm. it's so where people use these, these strong versus weak representations. If we can understand that, oh, we have management of internal forces that, again, are beneficial or detrimental, depending on our perspective and depending on what, what we're observing in context. If we can learn how to manage those more effectively, again, our decision-making process is much more accurate and then much more useful.
1: And so when talking about those internal dynamics and, and forces that we have to manage, what are the primary strategies that we as coaches and maybe therapists for, for you and others uh, have access to in order to, to try and um, influence what's going on at that level?
0: Well, it doesn't change the tools that we use. It doesn't change the activities that we use. What it changes is the perspective that allows you to make a better decision under the circumstance. So the things that we have always seen, um, for instance, if I have a, a young athlete that's that's working on some form of agility, like a like a, an outside foot cut or something to that effect, and I see them plant, and instead of moving into and out of the cut on essentially the same angle, I see them move into the cut, and then I see their center of gravity go up, okay? So if you ever watch a wave crash against the rocks on a, on a rocky shore, you see the water hit the rock, and it goes up, okay? Well, guess what? If you're a big bag of water, you got water inside of you that moves just like that wave, slams into the side of your body, and it hits the constraint, and it goes up, So instead of being able to take that force and reorganize it and turn it in the other direction to our advantage. Now we have a situation where we have somebody that's not managing the force the way we would want to. And so now we have to make a decision as to how that happens. So rather than picking on someone saying, Oh, you just have a weak something we have to say, okay, why is he unable to manage this big wave that's crashing into the rocks? And why is it going up instead of him learning how to capture it? Use it in his turn and to reorganize and, and, and make the change in the other direction. So again, it, it just helps us select the best intervention under the circumstance by understanding that why why do we have this observation in the first place? If you drop if you drop a medicine ball and you say catch this and absorb it, they'll yield. The question mark is how and where. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect okay so it's wednesday that means that tomorrow morning is thursday 6 a.m tomorrow morning coffee and coaches conference call as usual we've been doing these for over a year having a great time great groups great questions sharing information please uh join us for that the link will be on my professional uh facebook page just prior to the call okay uh intensive 13 day one tomorrow Um, Got notification everybody's gonna make it. So this is exciting for me because I was afraid that somebody wasn't going to make it because of some professional commitments. Um, But like I said, everybody's coming. So I'm ready for that. Um, Today's Q&A is from Zach. And Zach's question was regarding some connective tissue behavior. And so, what we have to do when we talk about connective tissues, we have to recognize the fact that the connective tissues respond to seven elements of force. I talk about rate a great deal because rate tends to be a very predominant um, um, element of force where we can actually see these connective tissues behaviors in regards to the yielding and the overcoming actions. Zach's question was pertaining more more to yielding, and we actually talked about how location plays into this uh, a little bit more than we we typically would. So again, I think this is going to be useful uh, for a lot of people. So thank you, Zach, for your question, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and then we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow, 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day.
2: Um, So my question is in regards to training, like, different connective tissue behaviors. Um, When we're – like whatever the variation is, I guess, for context, just speaking, like if you're trying to train a yielding, a more like bias towards a yielding action of the connective tissues, uh-huh. is it is there some sort of like local training effect um, in terms of like whatever variation you're doing is actually improving the local ability of the connective tissue by itself to yield or to be more stiff in the other side of the equation? Or is it more so that like the connective tissue itself is dumb for a lack of better way of saying it and it's just going to respond to like whatever load you're using or the activity or like the orientations proximally that are placing load through it while you're doing the activity and i guess the question is coming from the standpoint of um for those of us whether we're in like a team strength conditioning setting or like working in higher volume pt settings where you can't monitor every like the changes in relative motions and range of motion after every activity if we're trying to prescribe these activities, is it not doing what we think it's doing if they're not able to maintain certain positions throughout the session? Um, or would you still get some benefit just by virtue of the activity itself?
0: Okay, when you say, when you say maintain positions, what, what are you specifically referring to? Give me an example so I understand.
2: Uh, so like, so let's say you did something to recapture relative motions and like but then you give an activity that's too advanced for that person and then they start to lock up again. Um and they're just not able to maintain um with that Oh, cutting out on that. A answer little that no?
0: um, we were cutting out on that last little little part. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
2: Um so saying like you like you do like they come in and they're lacking relative motions, you do something right. that you feel recaptures it. Yep. Um but then the activity that you prescribe after that um is too advanced for them. Um and then they start to lose that motion again.
0: Okay. Are are they supposed to maintain relative motions at high force? No. Okay. Did you give somebody something high force that would take away relative motion?
2: Um, so I guess if it's if it's a, if it's a prescribing a high force activity, then that would make sense. But what if it's more on like the lower load side of things?
0: Okay. So at least you've established a threshold, so you know where where you can take somebody if you're trying to maintain something. You probably. Have an idea of of the types of activities that you're gonna you're gonna have to select um, when when you're trying to to address yielding. We have to think about sort of like a localization type of 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 a of a concept. It's like where are you trying to produce the yield, and then you have to start thinking about the time exposure, right? So and 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 there's a lot of variability when we talk about about the exposure of time from a prolonged static hold to um, literally some variations of, of explosive work have a longer longer time exposure than, than others, right? So um, what, give me a specific um, activity that you're trying to utilize or a specific goal that you're trying to achieve with someone so we can talk about this a little bit more in context because let me give you a reason static hold would produce a yielding action. So like if I do like a static stretch, a traditional static stretch will produce a yielding action if I hold it long enough, right? Okay, if I do a max effort squat and I compare that to jumping off of a 24 inch box, the duration of exposure to the connective tissues is actually longer in the box jump than it is in in the max effort squat, which means that I would get more yield relative to the heavy squat. So now we have to start thinking about context. It's like, where are you trying to express this yielding activity? Is it in normal walking? Is it in some other form of exercise? Is it during a specific sporting activity? Because we have to be very, very specific because we have we have time constraints in certain situations and we don't have time constraints in certain situations. We have magnitude that we have to address. And in other times, it's just you know body weight-based movement. So, so narrow the context for me just a little bit.
2: All right. So, so as far, like, let's say it's someone who's just shoved way forward. So like everything's like kind of on the lower extremities, behaving more stiffly. Yeah. Um, and then from an exercise standpoint, like it's standing on a box, drop a med ball, have them catch, drop and absorb that. Okay. Because they're shoved way forward. And let's say I didn't do anything to address that. Okay. I still did that exercise. Yeah. Would I get some sort of benefit out of that from a yielding like, capability?
0: Uh, they'll yield the question mark is where, okay. okay. Do you want them to yield at the first metatarsal phalangeal joint?
2: Probably not what I was going
0: for. Well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, no, I'm no getting like literally. So here's what, so you ever have those people that, um, when you ask them to jump or land and they, they, they land in this late ah. representation, they land in a late foot where, where they're, they're just on the ball of their foot, their heels way up, the yield is at the first metatarsal phalangeal joint. If that's what you want, then, then, then you got it. If you want the yield more distributed somewhere else, like if you want them to, to be able to move through like a middle propulsive representation, it may behoove you to actually capture that middle propulsive representation first and then start to apply an activity where you can produce the yield in that position, because you've got muscle activity that's going to restrict your capabilities to access a position. And that might be where you need to go first versus trying to produce a randomly applied yielding action. Right. Right. Cause they will, yield. like, if you drop, if you drop a medicine ball and you say catch this and absorb it, they'll yield the question mark is how and where. Do you, want, do you want the yield to be in the medial knee? Right, and we've all seen those people that they jump off a box and their knees kind of slam together when they're landing, right? Yeah, so, so again, that's a yield. Is it where you want it to be? Right, right? So, so acquisition of position may be where you wanna to start to make sure that when you are producing the, the yielding actions, that they're going to be produced where you want them to be. Don't watch Karate Kid for the Karate, all right?
1: No, no, just it's awesome.
0: You watch Karate Kid for the philosophy.
1: How many different representations are there?
0: How many people are there in the world? Yeah. (laughs) You like that, Jen? That's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jen, Jen, knows she's she's probably seen enough enough variation in like somebody that's considered a a a baseball player, right? And the many different ways in which they do things, so you can you can see it. Any anybody that's ever worked with with a group of athletes, you will see there will be similarities, of course, in body types. Like if you get a swimmer, they all kind of look the same, but when you get field athletes and stuff like that, they they do things so differently. It's not fun. They got a lot of variation on the thing. But but that that's why. So, so this is why I, I start, started by constructing archetypes, mm-hmm. is to give me a frame of reference, knowing full well that there's no way I can know everything. Right. But I gotta start somewhere. I gotta have, like I said, I gotta have a frame of reference that allows me to make influential decisions, right? And so, mm-hmm. so I construct these things and I say, these are the behaviors that would go with that representation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so somewhere in the world, get this somewhere in the world, there is somebody that is like the worst case scenario narrow and the worst case scenario wide. Okay. Out of what? 7.7 billion people. Surely like if we just did side-by-side comparisons of the whole world, eventually we're going to find the one person that is like, oh, wow, this is like the textbook. And then the other one is like, this is like the textbook. Everybody's somewhere in between it just gives you a point to start right and then you do stuff and you go what happened and you go that was good let's do more of that or you go that was bad let's not do that again that's training that's how you do it right at its simplest representation that is how you do it right so my, one of my favorite movies in the whole wide world is Unbreakable because it gives you the exact representation that I just talked about. So Bruce Willis, greatest actor of our time, um, is unbreakable. He's a superhero. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't get hurt. Right? He's at the one extreme. And then you take Mr. Glass at the other end, and he breaks. He's fragile. Right? We always have these extremes somewhere in the world. Right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we just use them as starting points. Get it? She's frozen or did I freeze?
1: How do you go beyond the starting point? Oh, sorry.
0: You do something. My internet here
1: in Indiana is not good. How how do you get beyond the starting point though? Like where do you go?
0: You do something.
1: I'm having trouble understanding then what I'm doing, I guess. Do something. Or like making sense of what I'm doing and then associating it to the representation.
0: Okay, so you have a representation and you have, you have, you have a, a thought, and you say, mm-hmm. if this is what I'm seeing, this should be something that would make a change. It should influence this in some way. Yeah. And I make a prediction based on what I think is gonna happen or what I want to happen. And then I do that thing, and then I wait, and I go, what happened? So I just updated my information. So now by doing an intervention, I have more information to make the next decision. And so, um, have you ever been on a sailboat? Yes. Okay, like the the kind where they actually have to move the sails to direct the boat. Okay, do you know what tacking is? No. Okay, so boats don't travel in straight lines or like, at least very rarely they don't travel in straight lines. So what they do is they have to they have to take advantage of the direction of the wind. So that's the way they move the sails. So to go from point A to point B, you see me on the screens, to go this way, I might have to go that way, yep. that way, that way, that way, that way to get to the end point. Yes. Okay, that's training. Training rarely goes like that, it goes. Oh, I went over here. Oh, I got to change that. Oh, we got to make an adjustment. Okay, okay. but eventually you're going in the right direction, right? That's ultimately what you want to do. You don't want to go in the wrong direction. And that does happen sometimes too, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't know the answers, Grace. We don't know. We have very limited predictability. What we do, um, did you read any Duke's book yet?
1: Not yet. (sighs) Sorry.
0: (sighs) Have you seen The Karate Kid yet? No. (laughs) I got to fire an intern.
1: I'm sorry. I'm too Um, busy.
0: Okay, read Annie Duke's book. Okay. Okay. Um, Thinking in Bets. If anybody's looking for a book to read, Thinking in Bets. Um, Where where you start to understand how probability works, right? Because that's how we have to do everything. We do not know the answers, right? Yeah. You get better with, with time and experience. So the experience is what allows you to manage probabilities better. You know, it's like it, when, when, you're, when you're young and you think you're an idiot, you are an
1: idiot.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, not that you're an idiot idiot. It's just that you don't have the time served to, to help you manage probabilities, okay? So I'm not being insulting, I'm just making a point because I am an idiot as well. Um, all you gotta do is look at my patient treatment this past week. I'm an idiot. Um, so, so, But you have to learn how to manage the probabilities. And, and so that by, by repeated exposures, paying attention, observing, you start to say, oh, this kind of goes with this, and this kind of goes with this, and this kind of goes with this. And so when I do these things for this circumstance, I tend, tend to get a good outcome. So like I said, 82% of the time, you're going to be right. 18% of the time, you could be absolutely wrong. Both probabilities are always in play. It's just that the idea is, is like I'm more successful more often than I was before. That's how you get better. But you gotta recognize that now. Let the frustration drive you for sure, right? Mm -hmm. If necessity is the mother of invention, then frustration is the father of progress, Jerry Meadows. Okay, one of my favorite quotes. Um, So, you know, not knowing is normal. Uncertainty is normal. That's the hard part. You gotta get past that. You just keep doing. Right, Don't hurt people, do your safe experiments, and then that's how you move forward,
1: okay? All right, thanks. You're welcome.
0: I don't know, was that gold? That was gold, I think I was rolling. I, don't, I wasn't even thinking, I was just like- It
1: it's was like just, a dad moment. I really I was felt like, bothered by you in that moment, I, Bill, thank you. I
0: am so not a dad, it's not funny.
1: <laughs> you had me a Karate Kid, Bill. I don't <laughs>
0: I'm telling you, man. It's like it's like. First of all, don't watch Karate Kid for the karate. All right?
1: No, no, just watch. It's awesome.
0: You watch Karate Kid for the philosophy, right? Hmm. You know. Gosh, men who catch fly and chopstick can do anything. Hundred percent. That's brilliant. So, so, you're you're just looking at the same twist. What you have to discern is like is like how much of each twist do you have? Good morning, happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, man. A little short on time this morning. Um, it is intensive. Thirteen day two. Um, This is the painful unlearning day for those of you that have been through this before or just playing the home game. Um, So we got to kind of cut to the chase. Today's Q&A is another segment from yesterday's uh, Coffee and Coaches conference call. We talked a lot about elbows and I think elbows confuse people because people think that the elbow is somehow different from everything else. The reality is we still have to worry about orientation. We still have to worry about the bony orientation. So, So, you know, bones bend, bones twist. And so the muscle activity can alter positions. And a lot of times the difference between the, the lateral elbow pain, so the pain on the outside that we, we tend to refer to as tennis elbow, and the pain on the inside that we tend to refer to as golfer's elbow, the difference is, is how long they're, they're exposed to these forces. And then we get a change in the orientation of the elbow. So we actually talk about that on the Q and A. Uh, Video today, so you will see that that will give you a great idea as to as to what you're looking at We also differentiate between a muscular or a musculotendinous problem versus um, a potential injury to the passive structures a little bit in there, too So again, if you're if you're working with throwers or golfers or tennis players This will be a very useful video for you if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation Um, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday, a terrific weekend. The intensive is off to a great start, um, so we'll probably be able to talk about that a little bit maybe next week or something. Um, You guys have a great day, and I'll see you next week.
1: Extending the elbow through that medial side, that's why that... That's why the bone is more protruding. So I was wondering if it was just the opposite in the other case.
0: Right. But it, it's, it, don't think of it as opposite. Think of it as moving through time because you, mm-hmm. you never gave up the first strategy in the first place. You just added the next one onto it. Mm-hmm. It's just like when we talk about, about the axial skeleton getting squished by superficial muscle activity, it's a progression of time and then you start to lose things. Like you literally just, you start to lose strategies. Same thing happens down the down the arm because the, the amount of load that you're putting through the extremity is, like I said, it's just like pushing into the ground all the time. So, so all of the same mm-hmm. twists that you see are happening everywhere and they are the same because our, our construction is the same, right? Mm-hmm so so you're you're just looking at the same twist what you have to discern is like is like how much of each twist do you have right and that's just mm-hmm. that's just looking at things segmentally first and saying where is my orientation that's why that's why understanding the superficial strategies on the axial skeleton becomes so important because that gives you your proximal representation. So if I know where this is, and then I can identify where this is based on how it bends and straightens, then that tells me what this orientation is. And then I do my little finger test down here and I can get my wrist position. And so now I go, oh, the hands here, the wrist is here. The proximal forearm is here. The distal humerus is here. The proximal humerus is here. Axial skeleton is here. And then there's your solution. See how easy that right. was?
1: So, so with the medial aspect, then, um, what's uh, what's the sequence in time that leads to that? Where you have the, I, I guess it's called. I think that's called tennis elbow. Um,
0: uh, inside would be the, the, the part golfers, of the elbow it, is protruded. Yeah, yeah. it be I, I always get
1: confused which one is which because I, I understand. I've seen people matter. that don't it's, play those sports.
0: Yeah, it it has nothing to do with the sport. It's it's, it's all about the orientations.
1: Right. Um, but I was basically, I was able to look at that kind of in isolation. Yeah. I, I mean, he was compressed A to P anyway. You get,
0: are you talking about like a pain on the inside of the elbow?
1: Yeah. So, okay. uh, well, it wasn't so much pain. It was just that, like, uh, so, like, this inner aspect, He just he just had a huge space like this. And so, for a rack position, he couldn't even get there. He was just like blocked because this medial aspect was just like pointing out
0: yeah so he's got he's got that he's got that he's got the posterior medial compressor strategy that pushes forward right right yeah yeah so so literally so then uh,
1: again i look at it in isolation so what's the time aspect of that
0: the time aspect i'm not sure what you're asking me like
1: because like so when we're talking about the lateral aspect you're saying okay we're starting with pressing you're oriented
0: hang on okay so he's he's driving more external rotation. Within the within the the arm, okay. Like he's turning it outward more. Mm-hmm. That's what you're getting. So, okay. twist, so so he's twisting the he's twi- trying to twist the bone outward more. He needs more space, right? So he's getting more and more compressed. So he needs more space out here, and then he has to turn inward, right, to to push, mm-hmm. but is it like imagine starting a twist so it's like twisting the towel like we talk about so if i got a little twist here i won't see the the i won't see the twist at the elbow but if i do this and then the whole arm just keeps turning outward and outward and outward i think that's what you're talking Mm, about
1: yes yeah like that yeah okay because yeah the the offset load or like the offset dumbbell and then getting er posteriorly clear them up a lot. Yeah. So it's he doesn't have to awesome. use the
0: compensatory strategy. So th- there you go. So you're creating the, you're, you create the expansion posteriorly. So you get legitimate ER here versus the bony adaptation. Right. Mm-hmm. And then if, if I don't need to twist this so much, I don't have the musculature that's twisting it into ER. Right. So that releases some of its tension. So now I get a, a better representation of the proximal humerus, then I don't have to use the compensatory strategy at the elbow, and then I'm driving the, the orientation from hand to the elbow, and then so it untwists.
1: So then in the other case, you're just twisting the towel inward, basically.
0: Yeah, kind of the other way, because you're, 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 you're taking the twist out of the towel. So if I, you know, if I twist, if I hold the towel here and I twist from this end only, and it goes mm-hmm. this way, right? So if I can untwist this to a little degree and then I twist this in the other direction, I take the tension out of the towel, right? Right. Yeah. That's so, cool. and
1: so so in that case, you would just need to do like more pump handle, get get the pump handle to get the internal rotation to basically, so so you, you don't have yeah. to orient internally and then turn. in that And then turn everything together. Upward.
0: So everything goes in the same right. direction at the same time. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. Okay, that's that's more clarifying.
0: Yeah, you kind of have them. to start. You you kind of have to have to start in in segments, right? I got I got to get the right orientation here, so I get the right orientation at the elbow. I got to make sure that proximally I have the right orientation. So, like I said, it's just that sequential kind of a representation. And if you understand the yeah, here, I think you know, I've seen document.
1: in your simple solutions. Yeah, I think I've seen in your simple solutions where I think you do like a bent over, uh, like I think it's a tricep extension or a curl I can't remember which one but you're you're basically t- your, your shoulders internally rotated yep. and then I think you're curling with it but you're getting yeah, expansion. That was just off my arms though <laughs> but you were wearing a hoodie so you couldn't see anything oh
0: okay so. not the same one that I was thinking of then that was probably the <laughs> triceps extension I was wearing short sleeves for the biceps work
1: yeah so um okay but that's that's a better way for me to to think about it so yep that's cool all right
0: climber's elbow frederick is that what they're calling that is it because yeah. of, of the gripping
1: yeah but there's two kinds of climbers elbow because most people refer the golfer's elbow at the yes yeah. the climber's okay. elbow but there's also people that get a tennis elbow absolutely from climbing absolutely so, there's two Absolutely. kinds, and they yeah. all do these twisty things with the twisty bars and the extensor work and all these things and stretching like the whole day, yeah. Getting anything? Yeah. So.
0: yeah, yeah. Jen, did you see the uh, the wrist flexor uh, element of his discussion there for your pictures? Remember how we talked about the the distal to proximal influence It's going to be more muscular, muscular tenderness when you get the. The tendinopathy in the medial elbow—it's going to be hand to ri- or it's going to be hand wrist to elbow—is the problem there, right? They're trying to create the overcoming action with the hand and the wrist because they they got a delay right. through the elbow. You see it? That's that's going to be yeah. When you're, I'm, st- when you're I'm still work. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'm still piecing a lot of your elbow stuff together and hand stuff, so I will have questions to come. But well, yes. just
0: just think about this though. If the elbow, the medial elbow is staying expanded, okay, Mm -hmm. too long, I have to create the, I have to have a rate change in the flexor at the elbow. And I can't do it from the elbow to the hand. So I do it from the hand. To the elbow, but that's where you get the that's where you get the the overload on the medial aspect of the of the elbow at the flexor tendon because it's an active strategy to try to close the medial mm-hmm. elbow in time, mm-hmm. right? So makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so th- when Frederick's talking about the climber's elbow, it's the same thing. It's like so you think about the the really like you know when you're getting like a like a, a they do the little hook thingy like yeah, that when right. they're climbing right? That's a bunch of finger flexor stuff like crazy. That's going to load the medial elbow. Right? So that's a distal to proximal problem. When you get a tendon problem, right, you know, in, in the elbow, it's going to be from the hand proximally. doesn't mean you don't have any orientation problems, but it, but like the, your, your solution is going to include this wrist and hand, because you've got to reduce, you got to reduce the, the concept of orientation. You've got to reduce the overcoming action at the elbow.